Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm here in New York and joined by Jessica Cohen, Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of the global media company Mashable, which reaches over 70 million readers each month. The former editor of Gawker.com and of the women's blog Jezebel, Deputy Online Editor at Vanity Fair, Managing Editor Online of New York Magazine, where she launched The Cut and was instrumental in the growth of Vulture, Jessica joined Mashable from Vocative in October 2016, where she served as Vice President and Editor. Editor-in-Chief. In her current role, Jessica's responsible for a team of writers and leads all editorial coverage across 11 different platforms. She's also a contributing editor at Marie Claire and has written for the New York Times, Elle and Glamour. Jessica, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Jessica, as Mashable's chief editor, you've grown its audience to record highs. How have you done it? I think it's a matter of defining your focus, knowing your brand, and paying attention to the data and leaning into that. And there's an art and a science to that, the science being the numbers. And no one in this industry, particularly now, should act as if they are above what analytics are telling them. But the art part being the human element and knowing who you are, knowing what you're not, knowing your writer's strengths, and using that data to inform those editorial decisions. So we took a hard look at what was working and a hard look at what's not working. And we, you know, learn to say no to a lot of things and learn to decide what we're not. We're also very deliberate about identifying successful audiences and going after those. And, you know, we always want to access new readers. But if we know something's working, there's absolutely no reason to abandon that. It's actually more of an impetus to improve upon what's already working. What did you say no to? There was a period where Mashable was doing a lot of broad general interest news, a lot of hard news. And... If you're trying to be everything to everyone, you're not going to win that game. That's just not a sound media strategy in 2018. And in 2016, we decided to really narrow the focus and the pivot. So we decided to focus on tech, which was very much at Mashable's roots 12 years ago, culture, which is intertwined with tech at this point. Tech culture, digital culture is culture writ large. And part of tech is science and part of culture is entertainment. So we really doubled down on those content areas. We found that those areas have very passionate communities, people who really want to know absolutely everything in a certain topic area. It's not enough to know about the iPhone. It's more interesting for these people to know every little theory, rumor, spec about the iPhone. They aren't just casual Game of Thrones fans. They're obsessive Game of Thrones fans. So we really lean into that. We want passionate, obsessive communities to know that they can come to Mashable for blanket coverage of the topics they care about. So do you have a typical Mashable reader in mind then when you're writing for them? Are they these Game of Thrones iPhones obsessive? Sounds like me, actually. (laughs) You are. Um, (laughs) The typical Mashable reader, our demo is uh, 50-50, male-female, which is a pleasant surprise, I think, when you look at a website with a history like Mashable, especially with roots in tech. Uh, It's your classic 18 to 35 demo. It's uh, educated. They're first adopters. And if not first adopters, they are definitely early adopters. They want to know what's new and what's next. They want to be five to 10 steps ahead of the curve. They want to know not just the headline, but what's behind the headline. They're not looking necessarily for a recap so much as a perspective or an insight that they can't find anywhere else. So what kind of dialogue do you have with your readers? How do they feed back? How do you know what's working and what's not beyond the metrics? You know, we're looking at Twitter. We're looking at, you know, comments on Facebook or whatnot. What I'm really interested in beyond your traditional quantitative metrics are qualitative ones. I am a big believer in mindshare. I think that is the 
element that really moves the needle for a brand. Yes, we are running a business. Yes, we want pickup. We want the clicks, et cetera. But cheap clicks, it doesn't work anymore. Obviously, we are dealing with the apocalyptic algorithm change of the year, and it does seem to be an annual occurrence. But what we're seeing coming of that is that the cheap headline, the misleading packaging, there is no payoff anymore. And that's slowly but surely being a tr- been a trend. And now it's this confirmation. So I would much rather focus our energies on something a bit more substantial and thoughtful and looking to see who's sharing those articles and what they're saying about it and where it's being referenced in other media outlets or by other thinkers who we respect. I think the old bait and switch approach now doesn't work for anything. My threshold now is if if any website tries to clickbait me, I will never trust them ever again. It's just you can switch off. So there's certain brands that I trust hugely. Mm -hmm. And then if a family or a friend uh, sends me something, of course, I'll click on that. But other than that, I've got quite uh, quite a strong tolerance now to just, you know, I won't click on any just anything. No, the audience has become very savvy no matter what demographic you're talking about. And it's a brand killer to have misleading packaging or some formulaic headline. Think of the brands, I don't want to name names, but think of those publishers who have owned that B and are no more or are a bit of a punchline. So we don't want to be that. Since the most uh, pronounced algorithm changes over the past year, I look on my Facebook feed and I look at what's being shared. And obviously it's you're seeing fewer posts from the brands themselves. But when I look to see what my friends are sharing on Facebook, and yes, this is just a small demographic, but the things I'm seeing shared are not just a random headline that they're reacting to. What I'm seeing more often than not are posts that are shared and content that is shared with the comment, this is amazing, or this is a difficult piece, but you should read it, or there's an interesting point here. And in that regard, we're seeing a lot more thought-provoking material pick up across social networks. And as a journalist, as an editor, as a writer, that's really rewarding. That encourages more work that is intellectually fulfilling and creative. Mashable once catered to social media managers, but I think, is it fair to say you're focusing now on personality-driven stories? I mean, what is a a Mashable angle on a story now? Oh, absolutely. In terms of personality-driven online, there is just such a din of commentary and perspective and I don't think we are any longer in the environment where the loudest person wins, but I do think that the most accessible personal writing wins. You already have the AP. You already have the New York Times. And even the New York Times has become voicer and voicer over the years. But I found in independent media in particular, the content that performs the best is the content that is written clearly by a human with a perspective and a personality. So I absolutely want to encourage that. I want our audience to feel that they are having a conversation or a dialogue or they are receiving information from an expert who isn't necessarily talking down to them, who wants to be accessible. It should be conversational. That's enjoyable reading. And even when we're talking about difficult subjects, I want the content to be accessible and I want it to be a rewarding read. It could be classically entertaining. It could be intellectually challenging, but ultimately voice and writing style It doesn't need to be over the top, the personality. Sometimes it's just a well-selected adjective or a sentence structure. You can be very uh, grammatically nerdy about it in order to convey that personality. But there's a lot of fun in that as well. What are the touch points for readers when they interact with you? Insofar as if you've got an average reader in mind, are they looking at an app? Is it a mobile website? Is it on a desktop? You know, how are people interacting with you in terms of platforms? Oh, you mean how are they accessing the website? 
audiences are accessing Mashable across multiple platforms. Yes, desktop. And we actually still have a decent desktop audience because, you know, we are a legacy brand. But of course, it's mobile. It's also Snapchat. It's Twitter. It's Facebook. It's uh, focused brands that we've created on social networks. So there are multiple ways to interact with Mashable. It's Instagram. It's uh, YouTube videos. Our readers and our audience viewers, they can find us across the web in different forms. As well as the lighter content, though, Mashable's publishing important reports, such as the investigation into the battle of LGBTI activists in Rwanda for equality. Is that something that you you want to be a focus? Is that where you're taking the brand? Absolutely. We're seeing that, that leaning into longer content and original features definitely pays off, both in terms of brand and search and authority. Social good has always been a part of Mashable from the very beginning. You know, you mentioned it once being a go-to place for social media managers and very much part of Mashable's spirit and ethos then through now is the belief of social media and the web as a power for good. It's about progress. So the specific piece you're referring to where we had a writer spend time in Rwanda with LGBTI activists and going inside a community that's actually quite positive and that it's a story most people won't know about, but it's a story about progress and progress in, in an area of the world that isn't getting that kind of attention. I love that. That is a wonderful, mashable story. Incredible journalism. Yeah, she did. A, the writer Heather Dockery did a fantastic job with that. And I'm interested in taking stories like that and diving into worlds that need a bit more uncovering or a bit more explanation, uh, questioning elements of our culture and asking why is this a thing. One more recent story I'm thinking of is, uh, you know, we were talking before this podcast about Slack and how pervasive it is both in office culture but general culture. It's taken over my life. Yeah, absolutely, for better or worse. All I do is just dwell on Slack. I mean, it's quite momentous for me to actually turn Slack off and, you know, sit here for a while, which is a pleasure but rarely happens. And Slack will be turned on immediately as soon as the tape is stopped. I'll try and take an extra five (laughs) minutes and enjoy a glass of water or something. But... Uh, We had a writer dive into the history of a Slack emoji that's hugely popular called the party parrot, uh, which was something I didn't even realize was so popular until I joined Mashable, which is a a very Slack-heavy office. And the party parrot is this ridiculous Slack reaction that's an animated rainbow dancing parrot that comes in different forms. It's the fiesta parrot. It's the island parrot. It's the hamburger parrot. And it is this universally uh, positive emoji to celebrate whatever Slack message in a positive way. But where the hell did this thing come from? So we had a writer really dig into the Reddit origins of it and talk to the people who created it and trace this history. Fascinating. You know, and it's not quite like a mainstream meme, but it's definitely an element that people know about if you are in this world. It's the kind of thing I would never think to ask, but now you've just floated it. I'll have to read it because now I, I can't not know. Exactly. So I love identifying elements or ideas that are in the ether and asking questions or even being the first to articulate that this is something you know about, even if you've never quite put words to it or really thought to explore it. Let's explore it. And chances are you're actually going to have a pretty interesting story. What's top of your to-do list at the moment in your role? I mean, presumably you have commercial objectives in terms of where you want to take the site and uh, its impact, but you also have, as, as we've discussed, editorial objectives. Top of mind with editorial objectives is definitely leaning into those features and more substantial pieces. Uh, writers love it. I love it as an editor. It's the kind of thing we want our no- our brand to be known for. So developing longer stories, putting a bit of time into special projects, concerning ourselves less with turning around 200 words in 20 minutes and rather talking about 1,000 words in 
24 hours. That tends to be a more rewarding payoff. And we're seeing numbers lean in that direction as well. Most writers now enter media via digital pathways, right? And there are two components to running a successful digital publication. One is the metabolism and feeding the beast. And then there's the more substantial work that supports the brand and asserts your identity and, you know, supports the mind share that is so important to uh, defining who you are in a very crowded landscape. But that first element, the feeding the beast, there is a churn and burn element to that. Absolutely. I had to do it when I was getting started out. And I think most young journalists at many publications have to go through that. Uh, you have to do it because these the sites have to keep updating. But I also want to be selective about what we choose to churn and burn, so to speak. Moreover, you know, if we can't aggregate something in a very timely manner, I'm talking a matter of like three hours, then I see no point. Let's go ahead and move on to the hour two. What's the angle or the insight or what's an interesting detail we can pull out of it that you might have missed but we really want to focus on? And that reduces this burnout feeling of just rewriting other people's work. That doesn't pay off anymore. Do you feel quite a heavy burden of responsibility, though, having a, an audience of 70 million? I mean, that that's a lot of people. I certainly feel a burden of responsibility to get the story right and to produce good work. I think the last thing the world needs is more crap content. Yeah. <laughs> so, Although I seem to be adding to it every week. <laughs> right. But there's a lot of responsibility to tell good stories and also to just get it right. There's a lot of responsibility not to contribute to noise and not to feed an echo chamber. And that forces us to take a beat and to think about what do we really want to say. Moreover, it puts us in a position to choose topics that we have the resources that can do justice to those topics. I'm a big believer in having feelings and not being a robot. You can maintain objectivity as a journalist and still bring feelings to the piece. Yes, you can be open about your own bias, but even beyond that, you can still write a completely objective piece. But if it's something you truly care about, the work is 10,000 times better. And the speed with which you work online, if you bring that natural feeling to what you're tackling, the likelihood that your product is going to be that much better is vastly increased. What are, what are the stresses of the job? What are the challenges? On the daily basis, the challenge is that the day starts very early. Okay. We have to coordinate across several newsrooms. You know, we have staff in London and in Australia. We have wow. our staff in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. So we are more or less operating 24-7 and there's wow. a lot of overlap. So there's a challenge of just coordination and story selection and making sure we always know who's doing what. There's the perpetual challenge of a news cycle that does not stop. Um, you hit the reset button every day when you wake up, no matter what time zone you're in. So I'm very mindful of distributing workloads such that nobody crashes and burns off of that. But that, that's just a very surface-level challenge. And then the higher challenge is dealing with a rapidly shifting media landscape. There's a business challenge there. There's an imperative to be very nimble and to be lean as well so that when metrics are showing that something's changing or the audience is going somewhere else, you are able to organize and shift whatever you're doing such that you don't completely abandon what's working, but that you can create room to incorporate new strategies and new methods and 
chase those audiences as well. And how do you do that in terms of your personal time management then? Because you've not only got to do the job, you've also got to be the lookout as well and see where the trends are going and, and be able to, to react to things almost in advance before they happen, certainly to plan them. Oh, well, it's certainly not all on me, right? I have an incredibly capable staff. So everybody has their responsibilities. And I very much believe that everyone should be working together. I'm not into content silos. You have editors running their sections and my deputies as well who all have their areas of expertise. But I want it to be a collaborative environment. We have a morning meeting where I want it to be a conversation and not just a simple lineup of what person is working on what story across which vertical. I want, you know, someone to tell me what a big story is and then throw it to the room. So people who aren't necessarily, you know, experts in Intel chips will ask questions of that editor. And often we get an even better story and a better angle out of that. Because that's the kind of questions that a reader might ask of one of the exactly. members of the audience. Exactly. Let's think about what the audience wants to know about. And what's your personal journey then into Mashable? I mean, I know you were former editor of Gawker and, and Jezebel. I mean, Gawker must have been quite an exciting place <laughs> to work, to say the least, to speak. Absolutely. It was a, gosh... 2004 to it's 2006. Almost, it's almost so. entered into legend now, um, isn't it, Gawker? Yeah, that was definitely a prehistoric media <laughs> era. Um, and at that time, it was just me when I started. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was just it, you. Just me. It was wow. a different, very different beast. And I think by, by the time I left, we had a second editor and a third editor, but I was the last of the early editors to just be flying solo. And Gawker was very different then. It was a super inside baseball media gossip, a kind of navel gazing that doesn't exist anymore and shouldn't exist anymore. It was so uh, silly in a lot of ways, though it did capture a certain moment in time for both uh, digital media and New York media and uh, kind of that self-obsessed nature. Everybody just wanted to read about themselves in a certain extent. I loved but it. working at Gawker, that was a tremendous launch pad, but it was you know just the first two years. From there, I was able to go to Vanity Fair and help build out their website as the deputy online editor. And I went to New York Magazine, and I helped launch The Cut, and I built out Vulture and Grub Street and Daily Intel, and that was incredibly rewarding, too. I loved taking these legacy media brands and helping them grow their web presence and really become players in the new media sphere. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a journalist editor or as an editor or as a digital editor? If you, you know, even just when your head hits the pillow on a night and it's just you, how, how would you label yourself? In terms I'm an of editor. At the end of the day, I'm an editor. Uh, a digital editor is an editor, a journalist is still an editor if that is what path they've chosen and that is the path I've chosen. Um, Did you always want to be an editor? How ambitious were you at the start of your career? I mean, because I, I was in politics and I was just a local councillor for many years at the very first rung of the ladder. But when I was in politics, it was like, this is the destination to prime minister ultimately. Do you know what I mean? I was yeah. always ambitious. Uh, Obviously, when I I'm start... not prime minister. I just want to say that. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought I was at a completely different podcast. I, I, I have to go. <laughs> I need to turn Slack back on. When I started my career, I very much just wanted to be in journalism. I wanted to be part of the conversation. I wanted to be covering the conversation. I wanted to push the conversation forward. You know, when I came to New York, Gawker was my first job, and that's the kind of 24-7 job you really cannot survive in if you're not ambitious as to whether I wanted to be a writer or an editor. At that time, 
you were both at Gawker. I was both writing all the time, but I was also deciding what was going on the site. I was making my own story selection. Or a writer working. decider. <laughs> a writer decider, <laughs> right? So after a certain point, you do have to decide, I think, if you want to throw yourself wholeheartedly into a writing career or an editing career. But I really loved defining a brand, and that's what I've always done. Um, I've gone to properties that have a a very clear-cut identity or are in search of one or want to hone down what they are and what they aren't. And I love taking that idea. I love executing on it. I love building teams around that and honing down voice and story selection that supports whatever those goals are. And that is very much what I've done in every single job. And that is, at the end of the day, what an editor does. So when my head hits the pillow at the end of the night, I'm an editor. Is gender equality still an issue in digital publishing? Is there still a lack of women at editor level? I, I mean, they, even asking that question, I always make sure I ask it of women and men because it seems loaded that just because you're a woman that you need to be asked about gender equality. But on the other hand, it's always difficult for me as a bloke because, you know, I'm a, I'm a white, male, middle-class guy. I'm, I'm not going to suffer any form of discrimination. Is it quite a blokey environment? Blokey environment. That's Do you have that word in America? Bloke? Uh in that we work with a lot of bros, I suppose. <laughs> dude, dude and bro. Dude, yeah, bros, we don't use dude, bros. Just by virtue of asking me if it's an issue, it's an issue. Uh, but it's not limited to j- digital journalism at all. We're talking across all industries. I think that in newsrooms, whether or not it is a heavily male environment tends to depend on the content area. I certainly, as a woman editor have been in plenty of rooms where I am the only woman at several jobs. And, and that can't be good, obviously. Uh, it's neither here nor there. I think where we are at in 2018, I've started to look at my own career path and my own experiences a little bit differently than I did five years ago. What was okay 10 years ago, I look back on and I, I say to myself, oh my God, I can't believe I shrugged that off. You are right, though, because we had Joanne Lippmann, the, uh, until very recently, editor-in-chief of USA Today, and she was saying that one of the first things that she went to as a cub reporter was a, a local businessman who took all his clothes off in, in an interview. And she thought she was getting through it by uh, just by ac- not acknowledging it, thinking, mm-hmm. I'm not going to let him beat me. Of course, now it'd be a different climate. Yeah, it's horrifying. And I can think of instances where at places of work, uh, colleagues said things to me, uh, men who had more power over me, and I just shrugged it off as if, you know, boys will be boys. And that culture is not acceptable anymore. It's changing, I, it is it? absolutely changing. And younger women are not standing for it. Rightly so. You know, what we used to shrug off, they are not shrugging off. And they are the ones who are shaping the workforce. They're coming in straight for college. Whether or not the problem will be instantly fixed, it, Clearly not, but I certainly feel a sense of responsibility, as should all editors in top-level positions, to make sure that the people put in place to make decisions are a fair representation of the workforce. Uh, There's plenty of data showing that men are often given jobs based on their uh, potential, whereas women are given jobs based on what they've already accomplished. That's not a uh, level playing field at fair. all. And I think it's very important to be mindful of that when you're making hiring decisions. I I like to promote from within. I like to, obviously, the best candidate for the job wins, but I, it is extremely important to keep in mind what biases might be at play in any newsroom when you decide who's going to assume any sort of leadership role. So I do think it's very proactive for all editors and all managers to make sure that they are promoting talent that fairly represents 
their readership and the workforce writ large. You're talking about 50 percent of the population here. And being in the media is a position of power in that you are helping to shape the conversation and you are telling an audience what they should care about on a given day. And the people making those decisions as to what to care about, they they should be women as much as when. This sounds like common sense. And I feel very, you know, it's it's very duh to say it out loud. And yet it needs to be said out loud because clearly we have a problem. How does the current U.S. political climate you know, how does that impact on Mashable? I mean, is Trump driving audiences to the platform? And as you mentioned there about sexism, you know, we, we have a president here in the US that that has openly boasted about sexually assaulting women and then went on to win the election afterwards. So there's clearly a huge amount of work to be done. I, I mean, when you phrase it like that, it's terribly depressing. Um, so the, <laughs> yeah. the Trump bump that pretty much all publications saw about a year ago, that is a thing of the past. I don't find that Trump content is driving audiences to Mashable anymore than anything else we write. Uh, Good work, no matter what the topic, that's what is rising to the top. When it comes to Trump specifically, we cover it from the angle of him being a cultural touchpoint as opposed to a political touchpoint. Yes, that is always going to be at play. But the cultural issue surrounding Trump is very much gender driven. And yes, we have a man in office who has bragged about his mistreatment of women. And for a lot of us at Mashable covering this, covering Trump, also covering uh, the Me Too moment and the reckoning and Hollywood and powerful media men in general, this is not an easy topic to cover. I'm extremely pleased and proud of how our staff has handled it. But, you know, for women, this is not easy to talk about. It can be uh, painful. It can be emotional. It can be very personal, even if you're not writing a personal story. Do you think that this is going to gain momentum, this change, that society... Because my worry is that it just becomes a blip that we all recover. I mean, for example, Roman Polanski, you know, he's been hiding in plain sight for three decades now. He's admitted to, you know, statutory rape of a minor, and yet so many actors and actresses have been, you know, applauding his work. And yet others like Harvey Weinstein seem to be universally shunned now. There needs to be a level playing field, is there not? I don't think this is going to be a blip. I actually think there's no going back. You will see in my opinion, the pendulum swing back and forth. There will be many backlashes like the Aziz Ansari piece that ran a couple weeks ago, um, wherein a young woman gave an account of a uh, bad date with him that went a bit too far physically. And, you know, it doesn't matter what your opinion was of the piece. Uh, The piece got a very mixed reaction that contributed to some extent to a backlash. Does that backlash last? I don't think so at all. Roman Polanski, his moment will come, in my opinion. Right now, we're so. finally seeing attention turn to Woody Allen, which when Harvey Weinstein broke in October, and this was something that was an open secret for a decade plus, but when Harvey Weinstein finally came to the matter of public consciousness and the fall of his company, everyone I know was saying, OK, what about Woody Allen? When is that going to happen? And now, three and a half months later, we are hitting that point. People are coming forward. Dylan Farrow's giving interviews. This will not be ignored. But the speed with which these changes happen as well is incredible because I, I remember thinking that Ashley Judd was incredibly brave for that, for that isolated article that she wrote and I didn't think it would go anywhere but within sort of three or four days all hell had broken loose. It was it, The speed with which his downfall came was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Ashley Judd, very brave to put her name on it, but all it takes is one woman to put her name on it and to be specific and to own her experience, and that opens the floodgates. 
there is a tremendous risk to any woman coming forward with allegations of abuse and mistreatment and harassment. There is almost no advantage personally to doing so. But once one woman comes forward, others will. Absolutely. Uh, Especially when you have multiple people who have experienced abuse and mistreatment at the hands of a certain individual. Do you think it's possible to disconnect an artist from their art? I mean, for example, I was a big fan of Kevin Spacey right until the mm-hmm. point when these revelations came out. And, and I found it incredibly hard to watch his performances now in the films, which is quite sad from a selfish level because I thought he was a great actor. Uh, that's a very tricky question that I think comes down to the person who is consuming the art. Kevin Spacey is the person who's on screen. And he's a star of the size that you're not just watching the character, you are watching Kevin Spacey. So what you're saying doesn't surprise me. It's very hard to separate the person from the character and when it comes to a celebrity of that star level. And also Kevin Spacey's – the allegations against Kevin Spacey are, you know, appalling. And when we look at what's happening with powerful men across all industries, the allegations do run the gamut in severity. And Kevin Spacey – pretty severe. Same with Harvey Weinstein. Other other allegations with other celebrities perhaps might be viewed through a slightly less harsh lens. It really a lot there's a lot of gray areas and it's a difficult topic to discuss and even more difficult to look at what's going on and then decide whether or not you're going to take that home with you as you sit down and fire up Netflix. That's a very difficult decision. I think whether or not a person's private personal behavior affects their art, it's very much up to the viewer. And could it expand into into non-sexual bullying and even non-artistry? So, for example, you read uh, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and you can be un- under no doubt that Steve Jobs was a total genius but was also a horrendous bully. Mm-hmm. I still own an iPhone and I don't think about that because I just want an iPhone. You know, is it going to happen when, uh, you know, th- with the speed of social media and how these stories can escalate, that bullies of any sort are going to get their comeuppance? I think it's a matter of how you define the bullying and the context in which the bullying occurs. And above all else, the product itself. When you hold an iPhone, do you think of Steve Jobs? No, I just think of Slack. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's probably the case. Well, not Slack per se, but I'm willing to venture that the majority of people who hold an iPhone don't hold that iPhone and think of Steve Jobs. They're thinking of their personal pocket computer, right? So actually, my main thought is, can I stop holding it? Because I, my, I'm addicted to my iPhone and it's great and I wouldn't be able to live without it. And I don't intend to, but I don't want to stare at it for five hours every day. I've actually started plugging in my phone at night on the other side of my bedroom. It used to sit on my nightstand and I realized that I was sitting on the phone as I plugged it in every night. I would sit and scroll through email or go down some ridiculous Google hole in lieu of going to sleep. And suddenly I would look at the phone and I'd been screwing around for 40 minutes when I could have been asleep. So I have moved the phone charging to the other side of the room so I can't look at it as I go to bed. We had Jimmy Wales on the the podcast uh, a year or two ago, founder of Wikipedia, really nice guy. And he was saying, he calls it the Wikipedia plunge, where even he's an addict, where he'll, he'll read an article on Wikipedia and then an hour and a half later he'll be reading about episodes of Knight Rider. And it's like, what the hell? You know, you, it is insanely addictive. It's absolutely addictive. And personally, my problem has become more the 
the Wikipedia hole or the Google hole or some random question that pops into my head and then I Google it and now I'm clicking into something else and something else. I've managed probably just for reasons pertaining to a decade of being in media, decade plus of doing this, uh, I've weaned myself off of obsessive social media monitoring, which has been a wonderful thing for my mental health. But social media addiction is not so much the issue for me as is the idea that I have something at my fingertips that can answer every little question that pops into my head. And if you are in media, if you're in journalism, you ask questions for a living. You are always asking questions in your head about something. And to have a device at arm's length that can answer that for me 24-7, I have found to be problematic to an extent. It's it's insane, isn't it? Because if I'm at home and I've got an internet connection, if I'm watching a film on my master television, I have to second screen. I have to be on IMDb looking at where that actor's been, where do I know him or her from. It's insane. And if I ever watch a film on like an airplane or somewhere where I don't have the internet, it's I have to like make a note to look. I watched Event Horizon on the plane to New York, an old film. It was great. But of course, if I was watching that at home, I'd be on IMDb as I was watching it. Whereas of course, I had to wait until we landed. How are you not online on an airplane? Because oh, I'm a Yorkshireman, I refuse to pay $20 to, uh, to connect to the internet. I admire your strength and resolve. <laughs> but actually, isn't that a, 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 an issue in terms of Mashable, that you know, you're know one thing that's competing for the attention of your audience generally? Because it's not just other websites and other apps. It's also Netflix. It's also traditional papers. It's going out cycling. How, how do you compete for that attention, given that there's so many other things that could draw your audience away from you? Mashable competes by being its most unique self, trying to offer an insight or a style or a personality or an angle or a topic that you're not going to find anywhere else. We're not going to win by being Netflix part two, but we can make a dent by being Netflix adjacent. So, okay, Mashable is obviously not Netflix, but there are products on Netflix, shows and movies on Netflix that people love and that we love too and that makes sense for us. So we will dive into those things uh, by picking topics that don't necessarily directly compete but fall in a wheelhouse with other properties that people might be interested in that I find to be a competitive advantage. But you yourself have had huge success with video across multiple platforms. Year over year, we've seen incredible success with video. Our Facebook monthly video views are up by over 200%. Uh, YouTube monthly video views up by over 50%. And on-site video views are up over 300% year over year. That's incredible. Yeah, and even Instagram, we're talking 500% just video views. And then we have over 40% increase in followers over the past year. So those audiences are there. It's about being selective and smart about what resources we put into it. But do you actually feel quite a bit of pressure internally to to keep growing the audience? What will Mashable look like, say, 10 years from now? Where do you want to take it in terms of your own personal drive? For the next 10 years at Mashable, I really want to be leaning into more substantial storytelling. I want to be even more selective about what quick hits we're doing. And I want to take those quick hits and actually make them a little bit longer. I don't think necessarily 200 words is the right way to win any games at this point. And with the algorithm changes and the shift in how sites and publishers are getting traffic, I'm thinking about audience. I'm thinking about humans. And I'm thinking about stories that will actually resonate with people because every publisher is going to continue to play whatever game is being played at any given moment in order to maintain numbers and in order to support profits. And that is just the business. That's not going to change. But in doing that, you cannot lose sight of the actual 
audience and the actual humans who are consuming your content. And if there's one good thing we can pull out of what happened with, quote unquote, fake news and the election in 2016 and misinformation campaigns, it's that there's a moment of national, perhaps international awakening and a raising of public consciousness when it comes to quality content and trusted sources. So when I think about Mashable in the long game, it's quality content and making sure we're a trusted source. Is there enough revenue out there to sustain so many digital publishers? I mean, because you guys are a behemoth, you know, you're a huge brand, but there's a lot of people competing for that dime. Questioning whether or not there's enough revenue to go around has probably been an issue since the invention of the printing press. Uh, the exist- We're all doomed, etc. Exactly. Uh, media is, exists in a perpetual state of existential financial crisis, uh, from what I can I tell. also exist in that existential <laughs> state of financial crisis. <laughs> so is there enough audience and enough revenue to go around? Certainly. Uh, not everyone's going to survive. We've seen that for as long as there has been press. Um, However, those that do survive are the ones who respond to trends, to analytics, to human instinct as to what is good and what isn't. We have to remember that we are editors and journalists for a reason. We are hungry for questions and answers and telling stories. And data and analytics, hugely important, but not at the expense of remembering why we do this in the first place. I don't expect you to answer, but what's next for you? I mean, you know, you've already got the top job. Uh, What's next for me personally? I don't know what's next. I'm very happy at Mashable, certainly. And there are a lot of challenges ahead. And I think we're at a very unique and interesting point in uh, media history. And I'm excited to be part of a brand that is in a position to work with that and adjust to that. And I like being in a place where I can think about both the strategy and translating that to daily editorial priorities. I love that. What's next? Who knows? I often ask this question because we have a lot of student journalists that listen to this podcast. And and one of the popular questions that I get a a good bit of feedback on is, you know, what advice would you give to someone who's listening to this, who's just finished college and is really ambitious and wants to be the next editor-in-chief of Mashable 10, 15, 20 years from now, whenever it is? What are the characteristics and the attributes? What what do they need to be doing in their career to to ultimately replace you? (laughs) (laughs) You might choose not to answer in your (laughs) self-interest. Here's how you boot me from my job. Um... You have to be hungry. You have to be willing to do this for free. I started off writing online for free 15 years ago, and that's how I got my first job in media. Um, You should be pursuing journalism and writing because you have no choice in a way. You have to be asking the questions. You have to be part of this world where you are telling stories. So my advice would be to take whatever work you can to be hungry and ambitious, ask questions, ask for more, always ask for more insight. You know, you are surrounded by experts when you take your first job, when you take your first internship. Take advantage of that. Uh, Yes, do what's asked of you, but also ask for more or volunteer ideas or search out opportunities, uh, bases that perhaps aren't being covered, but could be covered. So why don't you do it? It's very competitive getting jobs in newsrooms. Uh, It's certainly not the most secure job market and perhaps never will be. (laughs) So if you're entering this industry, you really have to set yourself apart with your ambition and your drive and your curiosity. Jessica, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. 
a Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.